0: I'm Carla Harris, Vice Chairman, Managing Director, and Senior Client Advisor at Morgan Stanley. I learned probably midway through that it was important that you make the ask. And there are ways that you can ask around pay. You can say things like, what would it take for me to get at the top end? Because it's my desire to be at the top of my field. I got the courage to go and have that conversation. And sometimes it's just as simple as having that conversation that will hold you in good stead. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger,
1: Carla Harris is Vice Chairman, Managing Director, and Senior Client Advisor at Morgan Stanley. In August 2013, Carla was appointed by President Obama to chair the National Women's Business Council. She's a Harvard grad, author of several books, including Expect to Win, and a gospel singer. When you were in your 20s or 30s, did you expect to be? where you are today financially and professionally.
0: I certainly expected to succeed both financially and professionally because I had, by that point, made the decision to become an investment banker. And I always had expectations of being successful no matter what I did. Didn't realize that I would have done all the things that I've done throughout my career And ultimately to become a vice chairman, because frankly, vice chairman titles didn't exist on Wall Street at that time. So it wasn't even something to aspire to. The thing to aspire to was being a managing director at a major Wall Street firm.
1: Interesting. Where did you get that expectation of yourself?
0: I would have to give that credit to my parents. They always made me feel that I was supposed to do well. And the story that I like to tell Veronica is I remember coming home one day saying to my dad, you owe me money. You owe me money because and he said, well, why do I owe you money? I said, because I got all A's and -and so-and-so's mama gave them a dollar. So-and-so's dad gave them 50 cents. And he said, what? I'm not giving you any money. You're supposed to do well. See what happens if you don't come home with all those A's. And so I sort of went, okay, that didn't go very well. And, and that's when I thought, well, okay, I'm supposed to do well. And uh, so that's where the expectation of doing as well as you possibly could, finding out what the epitome of that thing was. And in academia, it was having the A. And then once, you, once I started working, it was getting promoted to those things that were in front of you.
1: Did you have a 10-year plan or anything like that?
0: I would say that I did not have a 10-year plan. I like to joke and say I had a two-year plan and a five-year plan, but certainly did not have a 10-year plan. And what I say to my millennial friends is, in particular, they shouldn't be thinking about a 10-year plan or a 20- or 30-year plan. They should be thinking about modules of five, because I do think that things are evolving so quickly these days that companies are being created Careers are being created that don't even exist today. We can't even articulate what they are. If you think about it, 13 years ago, you couldn't say, I wanted to be a CEO of Facebook or I want to be chief people person at Instagram or I want to be CMO of Pinterest. Those companies didn't even exist. So I think the, the game, if you will, is to think about Modules of Five and how you can acquire what I like to call strategic skills, those management skills, really project management skills, analytical skills, you know, selling skills, presentation skills, because those skills are truly strategic because they can apply across all industries. You talk a lot about women
1: needing to own their power. And mm-hmm. so I want to know, how might people try to take away that
0: power? Oh, Sure. When you are in dynamic, competitive environments, people certainly try to make you feel that perhaps you shouldn't be there or make you second-guess the decisions that you make, second-guess the decision you made to even be in that environment, especially when it's intense and dynamic because there, there's a bit of a competition, if you will, or at least sometimes they try to make you feel that it's a competition. But the game, if you will, to think about in your own mind is Think about why you went there, what skills you wanted to get, what kind of experiences you wanted to have, what kind of networks you want to build, and be steadfastly focused on getting those things and not get distracted by, as as the quote said, the games that people play. But if you allow people to get into your head, then they sort of got you. You have given away your power. If they make you start to question whether or not you should be there or whether or not you're capable of doing the job. So
1: how do you keep yourself confident? Are you saying a mantra to
0: yourself? There are a few ways that you can do it. One, you can, you can say the mantra. Uh, the other thing that you can do is to remind yourself of that agenda. I'm a big fan, and it's the only thing that I think I repeat in both of my books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, is have an agenda. And an agenda, in my opinion, has two pieces. One is the seat, and the seat really is the job. And the questions around the seat what skills do I want to get, what experiences, what kind of networks. That's the reason that you should take a seat. The next part of the agenda is the house. Right? And that's where you're doing it. So, why do I want to go to that company? What kind of career trajectory do they offer me? What kind of career platform will I have there? Are there people there that already seem like they could be committed to my success? Or I think that I could get interested in being committed to my success. Do I have a respected voice? Those are all the reasons that you go to a house. So, once you've made that decision and you have that agenda, when things don't go well, You won't make an emotional decision about your career. You can go back to that agenda and say, have I fully prosecuted the seat? Is that what's going on here? Why I'm not really loving life right now or this is not going well? And if the answer is you haven't fully prosecuted the seat, then you should not necessarily leave that seat. And then you go and say, well, do I still like the house? Are their values aligned with mine? Do I feel like I have a voice? Am I supported? Do I have a sponsor or can I get a sponsor here? And if the answer is yes, then you're in the right seat, in the right house. Now it's easy to diagnose the problem. The problem then means there's probably a person that is confounding your success. And studies show that most women, in particular, leave organizations because of one person. And that's when it's time, Veronica, to remind yourself that there isn't a person born that you can't get around. And when you're feeling stuck, That means you haven't invested enough in the people in your environment, because it's the relationships that really create the mobility in an organization.
1: What's the biggest career obstacle you overcame?
0: I will tell you, it's not knowing some of the the pearls, as I like to call them, that I'm talking to you about right now. I really did buy, coming out of Harvard Business School, the whole concept of a meritocracy. If you're smart and you work hard, you'll get to the top but there are so many other things that really inform your success equation. So I'd say that was the biggest obstacle is not understanding that it wasn't just about working hard and and it wasn't just about being smart.
1: Why do you think so many women feel that way?
0: You have to admit the meritocracy is sold pretty hard across all industries. I can't think of one company that I talked to coming out of business school that didn't say you work hard, you're smart, you can get to the top here. Just deliver. Everybody sells it, even to this day. But I would think, and
1: I'm generalizing here, but some women have a tendency more to believe that than others. Do you have
0: no, sense of why? I actually think everybody buys it coming out of graduate school or coming out of college. Um, I do think, though, that it may be it may take a little longer. And as you know, Veronica, I don't often give gender specific advice, but I may say that it may take a little bit longer for women to get it because they may be a little slower to form those relationships that really matter, especially in a male dominated environment where informally a senior guy may talk to a junior guy or may invite, invite that person out to golf or may invite that person out to drinks. And Once you get exposed to that and those kinds of conversations, then you start to realize how important those conversations are. So if you're slower to get invited to those kinds of things where you can have that aha moment, it's going to take you a little longer to figure out that those relationships do matter. How would you describe the current gender pay gap? Well, I do think we're getting a little bit closer, especially given that some companies have signed on to actually publish the pay differentials or to publish what they're paying people across the board. And I do think, frankly, that the millennials, and this is one of the many reasons that I'm excited about that generation, I do think that they're going to accelerate that kind of transparency. Because one of the things I think that they demand in their workplace is transparency. They want transparency around pay. They want transparency around career trajectory and career movement. They want transparency around feedback. So I do think that that transparency demand will probably move more companies into the space where they want to publish that or at least you know give the general brackets, if you will.
1: How did you personally overcome gender pay gap issues?
0: Well, I'll tell you, you never really know how big the gap is, right? Because in most companies, one person should not disclose to the other what they're making. So there's really no way, unless you're looking at somebody's W-2, to really be able to tell. But I will say that I learned probably midway through that it was important that you make the ask. You know, and there are ways that you can ask around pay. You can say things like, you know, am I at the top of my class or where am I in in the class of people that came in with me or, you know, I've done my homework and the market pays this for a CMO. And so it feels like I'm at the low end or the middle end or how are you guys thinking about that or what would it take for me to get at the top end because it's my desire to be at the top of my field. And that also means uh, with respect to pay. So it's getting over any fear that you might have to have those conversations about compensation. And I'll tell you, Veronica, it was a colleague of mine who said to me one time, oh, well, I just told him what I want to get paid. And I thought, whoa, what what language do you use to say that? But it it made me think, and it got me to the point where I got the courage to go and have that conversation about the fact that conversation was important to me and sometimes is just as simple as having that conversation and at least provoking a bigger conversation around that that will hold you in good stead there's a new class of blockbuster drugs
1: drugs like ozempic they're changing bodies and all of a sudden just the weight Starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the Journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the Journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. What's your financial role model? You know, I would say that there there are lots of great, actually, lots of great research analysts that I've followed over the years in specific industries that I think have made great calls. So I'd say they're probably more, more of my role model than than anybody else because they have invested consistently which is what have put them to the top of their class in their respective industries so i think about people like chuck phillips and mary meeker neither of which are no longer sell-side analysts on the street but i really admired the two of them, among some of the other Morgan Stanley, great Morgan Stanley analysts that I've seen over the years.
1: What age did you start investing?
0: Probably 27, 28, before I made my first investment. I had been on Wall Street for a couple of years before I actually started dabbling uh, in the markets. Do you remember what you bought? Um, I don't remember the first stock I bought, actually. But I know, I know for this, it was a, definitely a consumer name. Because one of the pieces of advice that I give to kids who are just starting out is buy something that you know. You know, if you wear Nike sneakers, buy Nike. If you uh, eat McDonald's, buy a McDonald's, because you want to get in the habit of having a feeling of affinity towards that thing that you bought, that you invested in, and then you can start to buy things that you are researching that you may not necessarily be touching.
1: How did you learn what you know about investing?
0: I learned a lot of it after I started working. Actually, I didn't. I, I was not really following the market avidly as an investor. When I was in college or when I was in business school, I was interested in it, obviously, but I was interested more from an institutional standpoint because I came right out of HBS and went into mergers and acquisitions. And then from there, I went into capital markets. And I'll say when I started my career in capital markets, probably four years into my career on the street, that's when I really started. Uh, paying attention to, to the market and getting very interested in investing.
1: So what type of an investor are you? Are you aggressive? Yes,
0: I'm an aggressive investor. Yeah, I mean, at, uh, at my level, people would probably say I should have more fixed income exposure than I do, and I am an equity girl through and through.
1: So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, how would you rate the typical professional woman's knowledge of investing?
0: Based on, you know, obviously I am privy to a lot of the research that that's out there, you know, I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, most people are probably between a 4 and a 5. I think part of it is if you didn't grow up investing or you didn't grow up with, with that kind of conversation at your dinner table, even when you start to make money, the the proclivity is to go to something safe, right, and to do something that's easy. And especially if you're busy and you're really focused on your career and you don't have time to watch it, you don't have time, quote, really to learn, you haven't taken the time to assess getting an advisor, then you just dump it somewhere in a, in a CD or a money market or something that, quote, feels like you're not going to lose a lot of principle. The problem with that, though, Veronica, is that one year will pass, two years will pass, five years will pass, ten years will pass, and you'll find yourself as a as a professional with assets, but you're really not having those assets work for you. And that's why I say to people, I know you feel busy, I know you don't have time to do this, but please take the time, if nothing else, to have three or four hours where you have four different conversations with four prospective advisors, and if you don't know where to start, you know somebody in your life that has an advisor that could introduce you to someone. And most branch managers or complex managers, if you call, they will give you three or four people to talk to. They're not going to just give it to to one person in most cases. That's how you start your process. And then you make your decision around somebody that you feel comfortable with, uh, that you think has the appropriate experience. You check them out the way you would anybody else, maybe with a couple of references, but get started. Because once you get started, then you'll see how fast things start to get momentum. And if you feel uncomfortable at all, then then change that relationship. It is personal, and you want somebody that's going to, to be aligned with your time, your education level, willing to teach you. Uh, and is also gonna have good performance.
1: Some of the women I've spoken to are afraid to start because they're afraid, just in general, of the markets, or they're afraid they're not gonna get things perfectly. So what do you say? Well,
0: I'd say that it's hard to call the market perfectly. If there was such a person, (laughs) I'm not sure they would be (laughs) in that business all of the time. They might've found something somewhere, some other way to leverage that. But I would say don't worry about getting it perfect get started. Again, I can't stress enough that you want to get someone that's going to talk to you and educate you along the way, because what you don't want to do is start today. And it's 2017. And in 2022, you are no more knowledgeable than you are today, even despite the fact having had a relationship. You ought to be learning along the way as this person is on your team and, and doing the right thing for you.
1: Would you say women who are wealthier or who have better paying jobs tend to be more financially savvy?
0: No, I wouldn't make that statement. I think that's a gross generalization. I would say that the profile of the woman you just described is probably super busy and probably has less time. So she may not be so as she may, she may not she... she may not be as savvy as Somebody who really wants to learn this and has said that, you know, I have this amount of income and I really want to try to accelerate and make it grow for me. That I'm not as dependent on the W 2. I need something else, so I need to focus on this.
1: How do women and men, too, balance a professional and successful career and also a successful home life?
0: Oh, I, I think that's about making sure you're clear on the help that you need in both places. Right. So if you are in a in a very demanding profession, then you need to make sure you have a good team and you need to make sure you're an excellent leader and an excellent leader will delegate appropriately and not make sure you keep everything on your plate. Right. Because you can't be free as a leader to develop a vision to help the team execute, to empower people, to inspire people if you're mired down also on the execution. So the key is that if you've gotten to the leadership seat, make sure that you are behaving like the leader and delegate and and teach and empower appropriately. And then at home, I'd say the same thing. If there are things that you know don't have to be done by you and that will not compromise your interaction with your family, then... You know, use some of your assets to let someone else do that as well so that you can have high-quality time and attention to your family. But it's thinking through it, and sometimes, Veronica, it's just a half hour to really let me stop and think about, do I need to do it now? Does it need to be done by me? You know, how can I do this differently? Can it be done tomorrow? What would really give me the greatest return right now? And sometimes you can't think about it in the moment, but if you thought about it when you got held up for 20 minutes then you could prosecute it differently this afternoon.
1: Now we're hearing more and more women are out earning the guys they're married to. Wondering I know you're married, I'm not sure what this your financial situation is there, but If you are in that situation, how do you handle that?
0: I think you need to have those conversations before you get married about the the what-if scenarios, just like you'd have what-if scenarios about a number of things before you marry that person. If something happens to me, will you take care of my parents? If I get hit by a bus, will you still be there? You know, all the kinds of things, all the what-if questions that you you generally would have with somebody that you're thinking about living the rest of your life with. Uh, But I think you should have the money conversation, too, and don't shy away from that. Because if that is a problem now, it can be a really big problem later because you don't know what's going to happen. You may get a big opportunity that you're not even expecting today, and that person, unfortunately, may lose their livelihood. Then how do you pivot as a couple? How do you think about it as one unit? So I don't think it should be something that you worry about or handle after you get married. I think it should be something that you talk about before you get married
1: what would you like to have known about money when you were 30 that you wish you you knew then, that you know now?
0: Yes, I I wish that I had been probably more well-versed around real estate, I would say, because I'll never forget the biggest money mistake I think I made is my mother tried to get me to buy some land when I was 26. And notice I said I started really investing at 27, right? And I just started making real money, quote, real money, and I just got a good amount of money in the bank, more than I'd ever had in the bank, and I was feeling pretty good about life. And she came to me with a deal in Florida that would have meant wiping it out. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. It's just land, ma. You know, where's the return? You know, how do I know it's going to appreciate? Boy, was that a bad move. That was a bad move because not only did it appreciate, it appreciated markedly. And I I would have been up easily fourfold, easily fourfold. But I couldn't see it because I didn't know enough about real estate. And nor did I take the time to access my resources to ask someone. And that's often a mistake that we make as well. You have resources around you, but then you don't ask the question. And again, that's about taking the time. That could have been a half hour over there. 15 minutes over there but i could have gotten the information
1: would you say the typical professional woman is financially prepared for the next 15 years
0: it all depends on how you define typical right but the next 15 years you know that's hard to say because i think millennial women you i could if i if you push me for an answer I would say they probably are prepared because they have most of their earning years in front of them. Boomers and traditionalists is hard to say because it depends on how hard they were hit by the financial services crisis and whether or not they were wiped out and what that might mean going forward because they're in a different position with respect to earning trajectory, especially earning, like I said, earning from a W-2 versus earning, you know, in any other way. So that, that's that's a tougher one to answer. But I'd say on average, I'm going to say yes. I'd say prepared to deal with the next 15 years. If nothing else, I think we're all more aware of the need to be. And the need for each one of us individually to be because you don't know if you're going to have the safety net of Social Security and other things because a lot of those things, you know, one could argue could be at risk. So I think that conversation has bubbled up enough that people are at least aware and thinking about it. So therefore, I would say we are prepared.
1: What do you think are some of the top secrets of wealthy, successful, professional Mm -hmm.
0: women? Mm -hmm. I think that they take risks early on. So someone like in my position might have gone ahead and like I have a friend, for example, we are contemporaries. She started investing in real estate back then, you know, when I was still trying to figure it out and has done quite well around that. So I do think that super wealthy folks, uh, number one, they get shown deals because they're in those circles where those deals are happening. That's number one. Number two, they take the risk and, and invest a little bit earlier. Number three, I don't think that they're wedded necessarily to actually keeping it. They're willing to let it go, take the profit, reinvest, and go on to the next thing. And I think that you need to be willing to do that as well and not say, okay, well, I've made this amount. Let me, let me ride it some more before actually it goes across the crest. Time now for your secrets. I'm Carla Harris and my biggest money secret is pay yourself first and invest it.
1: Be sure to tune in next time when I speak to author and television host Melissa Francis on Secrets of Wealthy Women. Head to WSJ.com slash for more. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks again for listening.
0: What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com Or on Twitter, use hashtag #SecretsOfWealthyWomen.
1: There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies, and all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from The Journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in The Journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.